in the face of what is clearly um, uh, difficult and tragic in the world since the New York attacks and war and things like that, there have been a few moments of humor that have come out that are worth repeating, just because if you can't laugh, might as well, whatever. Um, <laughs> the first in which I read was the, the um, a cry for justice in one of the San Francisco papers for Osama bin Laden and what, uh, what would be a fitting punishment for him, which is to capture him bring him to San Francisco where he would be forced to undergo a sex change operation (laughs) and then send him back to Afghanistan. (laughs) The other in a somewhat similar vein is a cartoon that my daughter had put up at her high school, which is an all-girls high school nearby San Domenico. Um, And it shows the mullahs of the Taliban, the leaders of the Taliban, all sitting around reading this letter with great dismay and uh, um, fear, terror in their faces. Um, And it says, uh, a threatening letter received by the Taliban. To the Taliban, Give us Osama bin Laden, or we will send your women to college. (laughs) So, I think somehow that's also necessary. See a little bit of humor in the face of it all. What I'd like to speak about, and maybe tell some traditional stories about this evening is both the trainings that come from the tradition of the Buddha, the three great trainings that transform the heart, and what they express, which is the natural treasures or natural awakening that is a part of every human being our natural goodness, our true nature, our Buddha nature, when we're not caught in ignorance and pain and trauma and then the hatred and aggression that comes from that, the underlying goodness of the human heart and mind. And these are particularly, I want to particularly speak about them because they are ways of understanding how to continue to practice as you return home. The first of the three great trainings and natural treasures of the heart um, by which we both discover and embody happiness is that of sila. And sila is often translated as integrity or virtue or not harming. Sometimes I also like to translate it as the practices of compassion. In this sense, compassion is a verb, it's an activity. In the world, as we know, 
for millennia, enorm, enormous suffering arises from greed, hatred, delusion, prejudice, racism, those forces. And they are expressed then in action, those forces, by people who are willing to harm other beings out of their greed and hatred and prejudice. The guidelines for a compassionate life include, as we spoke in the very first day of the retreat, the practices of not killing and cultivating reverence for life, not stealing, but rather seeing that we share the things of this world together, taking care with them, not harming others through false speech or speech gossip and unkind speech, through misuse of words, and not causing suffering to others through the misuse of sexuality or intoxicants. In the simplest way, undertaking these as trainings when we leave means that every time we act, there is a reflection there for us, is this causing harm to others? And when we notice that it is by any of these actions, it gives us pause and makes the space of freedom apparent to us that we don't have to act in that way. Even for little beings, it's true. I have this wonderful calligraphy from the greatest Western master calligrapher, man named Lloyd Reynolds, who wrote a little poem that I like as a writer especially. It says, a bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. (laughs) There is a simple kind of tenderness or respect for other beings. And something in us doesn't want to harm other beings. We don't sleep well if we've harmed other beings through words or deeds, through the misuse of speech or money or other such things. There's a natural knowing in us. Sometimes it's called conscience, you might say. In the Abhidharma, it's called Hiri and Otapa, that inner understanding of what causes suffering when we harm others. But I also believe that just as we can train as we leave with our words to have them be kind and useful, true, with our actions to not purposely cause harm over and over, there is within us a natural love of life and love of others, a joy in the heart. And it doesn't take much to remember it. One of my favorite stories, this is from the Christian Desert Fathers in the deserts in the second and third century. Abbot Anastasius had a book written on very fine parchment worth 18 gold coins 
and had in it both the Old and New Testaments. Once, a certain young brother came to visit and seeing the book, made off with it. So that day, when the abbot went to read his book and found it gone, he realized that the brother had taken it. But he did not send after him to inquire for fear that the brother might add perjury to the theft. So the brother went down into the nearby city to sell the book, and the price he asked was 16 gold coins. The buyer said, leave me the book that I may find whether it is worth that. And with that, the buyer took the book to the holy abbot and said, Father Anastasius, look at this book, please. Tell me whether you think I ought to buy it for 16 gold coins. Is it worth that much? Yes, said the abbot, it's a fine book. It's worth that much. So the buyer went back to the brother and said, here is your money. I showed the book to Abbot Anastasius. He said it is a fine book worth at least 16 gold pence. And the brother said, was that all he said? Did he make no other remarks? No, said the buyer, not another word. Well, responded the brother, I've changed my mind and don't want to sell this book after all. And he hastened to Abbot Anastasius and begged him with tears to take back his book. But the abbot would not accept it, saying, Go in peace, brother, I make you a gift of it. And the brother said, If you do not take it back, I shall never have any true peace. And after that, the brother dwelt with the holy abbot for the rest of his life. (laughs) Happily ever after, it sounds like, when you read those stories. I believe in us that there is so natural a wisdom that our well-being is not separate from the well-being of others. Or as someone wrote, that if you cut a tree, your arm will bleed, that we are so deeply interconnected. And when you go home, the bridge practice to moving into the world, carrying the spirit of the retreat, is really the practice of loving-kindness in the line at the supermarket, and in the car, in traffic, and there with your family and those with whom you live. Oh, there's a place for practice, (laughs) indeed. And for all the leaders, local and nationwide, It is natural to us when we are open and listen to the heart to wish well for another, to not want them to suffer. And this story, you know, you hear it and there's some part of you that goes, oh, that was a beautiful way to handle it, that abbot. You just hear it and there's something in us that really, at least for me, that really lights up when I hear that story. And it lights up in us because the one who knows, which is the phrase my teacher Ajahn Chah used to use, that place of wisdom in us knows that that is the way, that that is the truth. So this is the first training, but it is also the first natural treasure of the heart, our compassion, to not harm other beings. The second, like Sila, 
in Pali is called samadhi. Samadhi has all these different meanings, different kinds of samadhi, apana samadhi and jhana samadhi and sahij samadhi, and there's all these Hindu samadhis you can kind of go through, so forth. But in its simplest meaning, it speaks of a purity or wholeness of mind and heart. Pretty simple. When the mind is quiet, the heart is open, we are present for life as it is. Reflect for a moment of when you feel most deeply connected with life. Walking in the mountains, listening to an amazing piece of music, sitting in meditation, making love, planting your garden, creating something beautiful. Those moments when we are fully present, not with struggle, but somehow in harmony with things as they are. There is such happiness to be found when we are where we are, not trying to be some other place, not scattered and worried and confused. Sure, those things will come. But when we rest instead alive in this moment as it is. My teacher Ajahn Chah used to call it just this much. Or maybe it's just that much. Just this much. Things, we have all these ideas about who we are and how the world should be. And actually our life is moment by moment, just this moment, and this one, and this one. And this is what we are given, the reality of the present moment. When you go home, the more that you are able to live in the present, by simplifying your life in certain cases, Yes, that's right. Spiritual life is not just about some meditation practice. It really makes us have to look at how are we living our life? Is it a wise way? Or sometimes when we can't simplify, because it's a very complicated culture, to simplify inwardly somehow so that we can do each thing as it comes and tend to it. There is a trust that comes as we practice, that if we handle what is here now, and what is here now, and what is here now, more and more the unfolding of life carries us rather than our ideas about it. Another story, famous story, this one from Count Leo Tolstoy who writes about an emperor who raised to the wise men of his court three important questions so that he would know how to live. First question is, what is the best time to do each thing? The second is, who are the most important people to work with? And the third of his question is, what is the most important thing to do? And he asked all the wise men and counselors and so forth, and some said, you need to make a schedule, you get a palm pilot and put your <laughs> plans in it. And 
put all the tasks in the right places, you know. Somebody said you just need good advisors, a council of women to tell you what to do, or <laughs> old men, or maybe you should consult your astrologer, or, you know, there have been so many answers. But somehow the emperor was not satisfied with these answers. And so he decided that he should instead go see the old wise man who lived in the mountains. And so he took with him just a soldier for a guard and went way up into the mountains to see the wise man, but he left the guard at the base of the mountains knowing that this hermit would not have anything to do with soldiers or even persons of wealth or power. He dressed himself in a kind of simple cotton robe as if he was a peasant. And when he got there and saw the hermit digging a garden, he nodded, and the hermit just continued to dig. It was such hard labor. He was an old man, and the emperor approached him and said, I have three questions to ask you. When's the best time to do each thing? Who should you work with? And what's the most important thing to do? The hermit listened, smiled at him, and just continued to dig. And the emperor felt quite sympathetic to him and said, well, maybe since he doesn't answer, if I help him, he'll have the energy to answer me. So he said, here, let me help you. And he started to dig. The hermit thanked him and sat down. And the emperor dug for a while and repeated the questions. The hermit just sat in silence. And they took turns working until the evening came. The emperor said, this is useless. I'm not getting an answer. And he was about to go back down the hill when the hermit lifted his head. Do you hear someone running? And sure enough, a man came running across the field, pressing his hands against a bloody wound in his stomach and fainted. The emperor rushed over and entering the, opening the robe saw that he'd been cut very deeply and took off his own clothes and soaked them in the water bucket there and tried to clean the wound and put a bandage around it. And then the emperor and the old man carried him in the hut and the guy was delirious and cared for him all night long. And in the morning, as soon as the man's eyes opened, he saw who was sitting next to him, the emperor. His eyes got wide and he said, Oh, forgive me, forgive me. And the emperor said, What have you done that I should forgive you? You do not know me, but I am your sworn enemy, said the man. For in the past war, you unjustly took the property of my family and sent my brother off to war where he was killed. So I swore vengeance and knew you were coming alone to see the hermit today and took my sword. But you stayed so long up here, I couldn't wait for you to come down and I sprang out to come get you when your soldier, who was waiting in hiding, came after me, and that is why I have been so badly wounded. Luckily, I came here, for I have not met you, I would surely have died. I had intended to kill you, but you have saved my life. I am ashamed and grateful, and if you accept my ap forgiveness, apology, I vow to serve you for the rest of my days, and bid my children and grandchildren to do the same. Please grant me forgiveness. The emperor 
was overjoyed to see that he was so easily reconciled with the former enemy. He forgave the man, called his servant to take him down and attend to him, to return the man's property, and to bring physicians to make sure that he would heal. Now it was time for the emperor to go back to his palace. Before he returned, he found the hermit again digging slowly in the garden in front of his hut. He repeated the three questions. What are the answers? And the hermit looked back and said simply to the emperor, your questions have already been answered. How is that? asked the emperor. Yesterday, if you had not taken pity on my age and given me a hand digging these beds, you would have been attacked by that man on your way home, and then you would have regretted not staying with me. Therefore, the most important time was the time you were digging in the beds. The most important person was myself, and the most important thing you could do was to assist me. Later, when the wounded man ran up here, the most important time you spent was dressing his wounds, for if you had not cared for him, there would be no chance to be reconciled. Likewise, he was the most important person, and the most important pursuit was to serve and care for him. Remember that there is only one important time, and that is now. The present moment is the only time over which we have dominion. And the most important person is always the one who is with you now, for you never know if you ever have a chance to be with them again. And of course, the most important pursuit is that of compassion, to make that person and all beings around you happy, for that alone is what will bring happiness to you as well in this life. So the end of another story. Very, very simple. The natural samadhi it's called Adi Samadhi. Adi Sila, Adi Samadhi, Adi Panya. Adi means higher, natural. Is already in us. We know in a moment, you've experienced it so deeply here, that there's no other place to be but where we are. All the rest is fantasy, isn't it? The past hasn't a hold on us, really, it's gone, disappeared. The memory, the future yet to come, all that we have is the reality of the present. And any moment we remember this, we can come back to be where we are, rest where we are in a natural wholeness. Thich Nhat Hanh talks about it, in washing the dishes. You can either wash the dishes to get them done, to get on to the next thing, or as he said, you can wash the dishes in order to wash the dishes. And everybody knows, because we've all had those moments, or most of us, if not us, then someone we love, 
getting the phone call from the doctor who says, I'm sorry to tell you your test came back and I need to see you because you have this or that diagnosis that's very serious, life-threatening. And the minute you hear it or someone you love hears it, everything changes, doesn't it? The mirror of the reality of impermanence and death clarifies us. And we realize that washing the dishes is a beautiful thing. And seeing the people we live with is a beautiful thing. And taking a step is a miraculous thing. We know this. It is there in our hearts as the reality of wisdom, the one who knows. So yes, when you go home, do a daily sitting practice. Take time in silence. Walk in the mountains. Walk by the ocean. Find a period in the morning or evening to just be with yourself. Do those things that remind you to live in the reality of the present. You know what they are, so you can live wisely. And remember, it's not something you have to develop and get and make. It is who you really are. The third training and the third natural perfection of our being is called panya or prajna, which means wisdom. And then it turns into adipanya, adiprajna. When we are not involved in harming other beings, our life gets simple. When we live in the present and not in the past and future, we can see clearly. And when we see clearly, there arises for each of us a natural wisdom that we can love the world, but we cannot possess it. A star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. What happened to your 10 days? Disappeared, gone. I mean, it was amazing. You had moments, didn't you? And where are they now? They are back there with Y2K, remember that? They're back there with the 90s, remember them? and the 80s, and the 19th century and the 18th century, and for that matter, the pharaohs, right? And the ancient Greeks, and all the other things, the dinosaurs, where are they? They're the same place. This retreat went the way of the dinosaurs. (laughs) It did, which means it doesn't exist anymore. It's amazing. Existence comes trooping out of nowhere, does this dance, and then disappears. Wisdom knows that this is true. It's so obvious. Did I talk about that cartoon from the San Francisco Chronicle that had the camels? There is a family going across the desert. It's nice to talk about wisdom from the Middle East in these times. And the first is the father on his camel with all the luggage and bags and 
carpets, and then there's the mother behind him with all her things on the camel, and then there are three smaller camels with the children, each with their luggage and baggage, trekking across these sand dunes. The father and the last child are speaking to one another in the cartoon, and the father says, stop asking if we're almost there yet. We're nomads for crying out loud. (laughs) That is wisdom. We are nomads. That's the reality of our life. It is constant change, quite unpredictable. And some things we can predict, but you can sit down here and you don't have any idea really what feelings or thoughts will come in the course of that sitting. And here you are, it's very contained and controlled in a certain way. Still, you don't know. I don't know, we don't know. So the idea from wisdom isn't that you get something. Now I know more and more and you accumulate. Wisdom is really the wisdom of opening or letting go. Did you get anything in this retreat? I hope not. This isn't the idea that you're going to come here and get more and leave and be a really well-informed Buddhist. Spare your friends and family that. This is actually the dump. (laughs) This is the place to leave stuff, right? So that you are free and open when you go. Ajahn Sumedho, wonderful English monk and abbot, says, for Western minds who are so obsessed with ambition and grasping, what I found is most helpful is to simplify our meditation practice just down to one thing, letting go, these two words. Rather than trying to develop this practice and achieve this and go into that and studying the Abhidharma and learn Pali and Sanskrit and then the Madhyamaka and the Prajnaparamita and get ordinations in the Hinayana and the Mahayana and the Vajrayana and write books and become a renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international conferences, why not just let go? Let go. For years I did nothing but this in my practice. Every time I would grasp at understanding and becoming something special and figuring it all out, I'd say, Sumedho, let it go. Just let go. Until the desire to be something would fade out. So I'm making it simple for you to save you from getting caught in an incredible amount of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) Some of you might have the desire to become Maitreya, the Buddha of the age, radiating love throughout the world. Instead, I recommend just being an earthworm who knows only two words, let go, let go. You see, ours is called the lesser vehicle, the Hinayana, and we have only these poverty-stricken practices. <laughs> Wisdom sees the truth of impermanence, that things can be cared for, but they cannot be possessed, that grasping makes suffering because we don't control life. We can tend to it, 
we can plant the seeds of goodness moment by moment and understand the conditions, but we are not in charge, even of our own body. You can take care of it, but you can't say, don't grow old. Does it listen? Not for a moment. It doesn't, does it? Wisdom realizes that our happiness does not come from what we have, our true happiness, or even the circumstances, but is independent and unshakable of conditions. Viktor Frankl, who said, we who lived in the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts, comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from us but the last of human freedoms, the freedom to choose our spirit in any given circumstance. This is wisdom, the wisdom of the heart. And there are all these things that we go out and tend to, and it's beautiful. You tend to your work and your family and your community and the world around as best you can. Tending to a garden doesn't mean you go in and pull on the carrots to help them to grow. You water them. You fertilize them. Sometimes they grow. Sometimes they won't. One doctor an internist, spoke about his early training on a large inner-city AIDS ward at the San Francisco General Hospital. It was a dozen years ago before all the protease inhibitors and drug therapies were available, and all the patients who were admitted to his service died. Many were young men quite close to his own age, people whose lives mattered deeply to him. After some months of this, he became overwhelmed by a sense of futility. He felt that way for much of his two years there. Now, David also happens to be trained as a Buddhist, and it's always been his practice to offer prayers for each of his patients. When a patient dies, even now, he lights a candle on his altar at home and keeps it burning for 49 days. For the whole time he was at San Francisco General, he prayed for each dying young man and lit a candle on his altar for them. Now, years afterward, he tells me, this is Rachel Remen of this, it made him wonder. Perhaps the reason he was there was not what he had thought. He had expected to serve by curing and rescuing his patients. But when their disease proved resistant to his medical expertise, he felt useless. But maybe he was not meant to be there to cure people. Perhaps he was there so that no one would die without someone to pray for them. Perhaps he had served every one of his patients flawlessly. We don't always get to choose the outcome of things. 
but we can offer our heart, our compassion, the moments of goodness that are so natural to us. A story for you from the time of the Buddha. Once there were great hostilities between the neighboring countries of Magadha and Kaplavatu, where the Buddhist Shakya clan lived. When the Sakya people realized the king of Magadha was going to attack them, they implored the Buddha to go and step forward to make peace. The Buddha agreed, and although he offered many proposals for peace, the king of Magadha wouldn't hear them. His mind was burning with envy, jealousy, and finally he decided to attack. So the Buddha went out by himself and sat in meditation under a dead tree by the side of the road leading to Kapilavatu in the midst of the Indians' hot season. The king of Magda passed along the road with his army and saw the Buddha sitting under the dead tree in the full blast of the sun. Why do you sit under this dead tree? O blessed one, said the king. And the Buddha answered, I feel cool and happy even under this dead tree in the heat of the sun because it grows in my beautiful native land. And as he said these words, they pierced the heart of the king who recognized the commitment and dedication the Sakyas felt for their land and returned to his country with his army. Later, however, this same king was again incited to war. The Buddha again tried to make peace. This time, his army destroyed Kapilavatu and Shakyamuni Buddha stood by and watched. Becoming the peace we seek can indeed transform the situations many times. But even in failure, we can follow our steadfast commitment to compassion. As Martin Luther King Jr. said, I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do what is right and what is good, come what may. Panya, prajna, sees the world with the eyes of wisdom. Who are we really, born into this body? Are we the body? Not the same body you were as a child. Are we our feelings or thoughts? Gosh, I hope not. Because they change. You would be a different person every two minutes. Well, in some cases, that's probably accurate. Are we the one who watches all of this? Who was it that was born into this body? What we take as me and mine, the small sense of self, the separate sense of self, dissolves the eyes of wisdom and our identities of race or gender, our sense of unworthiness or pride 
our fears or anger or judgment, they drop away in the light of wisdom. They're still there, but it's hard to take them seriously, all our opinions. It's like Mark Twain said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. We see that our mind creates all these stories, but what is actually true is just what's here now. And in a moment, you can see it on retreat, you get completely caught up in some drama, some fear, some anger, some confusion. And then in an instant, sometime, you kind of wake up from the dream and say, wow, I was really caught in that one, wasn't I? Do you know those moments? We all have them. The moment of natural wisdom, where we're so identified, this is who I think I am. And then, boom, wow, that was an amazing dream, wasn't it? Just that. Oh, nobly born, do not forget who you really are. Life is so short. You are not this body, these feelings, these stories that you tell. The difference, said the Buddha, between an ordinary person and enlightened person is just this. An enlightened person, I'll do it this way, an ordinary person has body and all the senses of the world, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness which knows them. An enlightened person has body and world perceptions, feelings, inner perceptions, all of the thoughts and consciousness, exactly the same. The only difference is that an ordinary person grasps these and believes that that's who I am, holds on to them, the unenlightened person. The enlightened person has the same exact experience, only it's not grasped and held on to. There is instead a natural freedom. Even birth and death, said my teacher Ajahn Chah, is the language of children. But in the one who knows in your heart, birth and death happen all the time, and that is not who we are. When we let go, we enter that which is timeless and open, where all things are free to come and go. And every one of us in this retreat has had incredible moments of tenderness, or compassion, or just being with things as they are, it's such a relief. What we're after is one moment of enlightenment after another, said Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, moment to moment awakening. My teacher Ajahn Chah asked us a question that was a little bit like a koan. He said, where is it that there is no going forward, 
no going backward, and no standing still, was the question that he asked. So I'll ask it of you. Where is it that there's no going forward, no going backward, or no standing still? As a hint, I'll give you a different question. Someone came to the Buddha one day and said, where is it that a, that a practitioner can stand or rest where they will not be seen by the king of death? The wisdom, the wisdom I, that knows that we're happy not from what we get, but from what we give that our freedom comes not from clinging, but from letting go, that holding on gives what one Dharma teacher called gives us rope burn, because it's always changing. (laughs) It is. And that learning how to live in this life wisely without possessing is our greatest happiness. This is adipanya. This is the natural wisdom that we each have to be where we are, to see the world as it is, and then to bring forth in that moment our particular gift. Because each one of you has a particular gift to give this world. And it might be the gift of raising one child or making your garden a place of peace or speaking out for justice, or making an honest business that's right livelihood for yourself and others, or creating a work of art, or healing another. Each of us has opportunities given to us to act and plant beautiful seeds when we realize that we possess nothing, all that's left to do is to make the world beautiful. It's so natural. I have just three things to teach, it says in the Tao. Simplicity, patience, and compassion. These are your greatest treasures. Simple in action and thought, you return to the source of your being. Patient with both friends and enemies, you accord with the way things are. I like this because the enemies are there. It's not like you pretend they're not. Compassionate toward yourself, you reconcile with all beings in the world. When you meet a being who is wise and there's that light from a particular wise being, you see it and enjoy it because it touches that wisdom in yourself. And the wise beings that you see that touch that wisdom in your own heart are usually so simple. They're not complicated. They're kind and easy and open 
and they see the world as it is. Your invitation is to stay in touch as you leave with your natural compassion to not harm other beings, with your natural samadhi to trust that you can rest more and more in the present and live your life where we are, and with your natural wisdom to see the world as it is and instead of possessing and controlling, to live in it as a Buddha and bring your blessings. Let's sit.